Hello, I'm Eugene Chausovsky, a senior Eurasia analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. There is a really important question, and that is that how do we ensure that existing nuclear power plants stay online? Because there's a very clear environmental benefit to having them continue to run, and there's a geopolitical benefit also. Welcome to the Stratfall podcast from worldview.stratfall.com. I'm Ben Sheen. Today's podcast is the second installment of a conversation between Stratfor's Vice President of Global Analysis, Reva Gujon, and Russell Gold. Russell is the senior energy reporter for the Wall Street Journal and also a best-selling author. He's written extensively about transitions in global and domestic energy markets, and his latest book is Superpower, One Man's Quest to Transform American Energy. In this wide-ranging conversation on the geopolitical trajectory of the world's energy supply, Reva and Russell touch on topics from safety to politics to energy transitions already underway. Let's join them in the Stratfor studio. Hello, I'm Reva Gujon, and for this Stratfor podcast, I'll be joined by Russell Gold, an award-winning investigative journalist and senior reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Russell has two compelling books on U.S. energy. The first is The Boom, which details the evolution of the U.S. shale revolution. And his newly released book, Superpower, is a story centered on an incredibly ambitious entrepreneur who has been hell-bent on trying to overhaul the U.S. power grid in favor of renewable energy. Russell, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. First, a little bit about the subject of of Michael Skelly, your main protagonist in right. Superpower. This is a guy who back in 1999 started doing wind and was the chief development officer for one of the, the really the predominant wind development companies in the 2000s, uh, built up what was called Zilka Renewables and then became known as Horizon, now part of EDPR. His story from 99 to 2019 is really the story of renewables in the United States. Are you, and if you could channel Skelly for a moment, are you surprised to see climate issues at the forefront of the the 2020 presidential debate now? It's obviously a longstanding issue. It's always been there. But now there's talk of a national emergency uh, being proclaimed in the name of climate. Candidates are being pushed to come up with meaningful, substantive proposals on climate policy. Why now, in your opinion? I think why now is that there's there's sort of this logic of numbers and of years going on. And the reports are coming out that says, okay, this is what's going to happen by 2050. This is what's going to happen by 2060. It's much more concrete than it was let's say in 2008, when we had a debate in Congress over creating a cap-and-trade bill. And younger people especially are looking at that and saying, wait, 2050, I'm going to be 30, 40, right. I'm going to be raising kids. I'm going to see this. So in other words, the, the potential for a climate change affecting your life is no longer something way out in the future. Mm -hmm. It is something that especially younger generations look at and say, I'm going to be living with this. Mm -hmm. And that then is compelling action. 
Um, and so you have someone like a, a, a Jay Inslee coming out of Washington in the Democratic primary, building his whole campaign about it, trying to raise this issue, uh, the Green New Deal, lots of ideas um, uh, so far, lots of enthusiasm, not quite as much policy and right. meat on the bones as, as you know. But I would, it's a I would start, like to say it's a start, sure. sure. Um, and you you make the assertion um, that, and and this was really Skelly's observation that, uh, quote unquote, ordinary people were interested in renewables and were willing to pay more for power so long as the costs and power were predictable. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. stability element being right. really the key issue. And so, how close are we to? that predictability element in order to to drive that change? Oh, it, it's here. I mean, if you look at uh, – if you ask why are companies like Google uh, and Facebook um, and now Anheuser-Busch and, you know, you sort of name it, Mars has been very involved in this. All these big corporate companies uh, buying wind farms, investing in wind farms, investing in solar farms. Well, one answer is that, you know, they like some of – let's call it the green dividends. You know, they – Anheuser-Busch had this great commercial during the um, the Super Bowl last year where, you know, they're embracing wind and, and, you know, it gives them all credentials. But there's another big reason, and that is that if you look – and I've, I've done this as a, as a reporter. If you look at some of the deals these guys are striking, Facebook, Google, I mean, they need data centers for their operations. They do not want to have their data centers and the cost of their data centers, which are incredibly big energy consumers, mm-hmm. to go up and down with a commodity. They just basically want to lock in the price and focus on what they're good at, which is, you know, advertising and selling, uh, you know, getting users to, to be more engaged. They don't want to have to worry about, you know, is, is natural gas, is the power price going to go up or going to go down? So they like that. Because and they're that, the mega consumers to mega consumers. drive that change. Absolutely. So, so I mean, that's already happening. I mean, th- this trend of corporate purchasing of renewables has been a huge driver of renewable growth over the last few years. And they're coming in and they're buying not just – it used to be, you know, they would buy at maybe 10 or 20 percent above what the wholesale price is. They're now coming in at the wholesale price or below the wholesale price. In fact, it's getting to the point where they can kind of come in and undercut the wholesale price, cut a deal. You know, everyone else is going to have to um, – kind of a little bit subsidize them. And as you mentioned, this is very much a generational trend in play where you see a lot of younger people as well as older people who want to ride this technological wave. They want to play a part in mitigating climate change risks. They want to live more sustainably. Um, I was told by a friend the other day who told me with a very straight face that their new Tesla is a step toward world peace. And I, you know, also, I, I was just the, the comment stuck with me, and I'm wondering. It shows it, how much we want to sort of associate fossil fuels <laughs> with conflict, and right. you know, I mean, I'm not sure. I, I, I you know, it's a bit of a stretch. It's a bit of a stretch. I'm curious if, if you think that level of idealism is healthy, necessary, even dangerous. Mm, that's a good question. Um, yeah, we run a risk of getting ahead of ourselves. We're putting too much on renewables. Um, you know, first of all, renewables aren't perfect, mm-hmm. um, especially with solar. There's going to be some end-of-life issues. There are going to be some disposal issues. A little bit less with wind. You take down a wind turbine, you've got a bunch of metal. You know, you recycle the metal. We know how to do that. Right. Um, yeah, I, I sort of worry about anyone who puts too much faith uh, in, in one energy source. Um, what we need is a good blend right now, um, and you know renewables. Uh, we always 
we get excited about a new source of energy and then we realize, oh, wait, it's got problems. You know, we build dams in the West and then we realize, oh, you know, it's now we're, you know, we've lost all of our free flowing rivers and we've, you know, their, their cost of, of damming it up and creating the Lake Powells. And, you know, we build coal and it's a great, you know, it, it, it creates the industrial revolution. And now we're realizing that there was a price to pay because of emissions of carbon into the atmosphere and also massive uh, building size uh, piles of coal ash that we're trying to figure out what to do with. Nuclear is wonderful, great technology. What are we going to do with the spent fuel rods? You know, so there's always the you can get too excited. So let's, you know, look, renewables solve a big problem we have right now, which is what are we going to do about the carbon dioxide uh, the greenhouse gases that are accumulating in the atmosphere. This is a major step there. Um, but, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. You know, what we're talking about is electricity, which is only a portion of the giant, uh, of the overall energy. Um, we can decarbonize electricity in North America, and increasingly we can talk about doing it around the world. We're still a far way away from doing that for transportation, industrial Agriculture, a lot of challenges yet to, to come. So let's not, you know, let's not buy a Tesla and declare victory. You know, it's, <laughs> right. it's a step on the way. And so in that vein, what is the reality check when it comes to the term energy independence? Oh. It's a term that gets very loosely thrown around in, in debates and political speeches. The president himself has used that concept to explain why he doesn't believe the U.S. should be as active in securing vital energy straits in the Middle East. But there's obviously a lot more to it. And when it comes to rehauling your refineries to be able to process that light sweet crude that we're currently fracking in abundance, um, as opposed to the heavy sour stuff that they're designed to refine. So how would you define U.S. energy independence? And realistically, how far along is the U.S. in that goal? Well, first of all, I'm not a fan of even trying to achieve full energy independence, right? We, you know, What are we doing with all the – a lot of the oil and some of the gas and the petrochemicals that, that, are, that we're developing right now? Well, we're exporting them. And that's not independence. That's that's global bilateral trade. I think that's not the worst thing in the world. My personal definition of energy independence is producing enough elect, uh, excuse me, producing enough energy domestically and having enough trading partners mm-hmm. so that you're not geopolitically you you don't face a geopolitical threat when someone says we're cutting off your supply. What happened in the 1970s? That kind of threat. Um, and so you know, part of that is. Um, producing a lot on domestically, as I said. Part of it is making – reducing your imports to a level where you're not dependent on one country. You know, if that one supplier cuts you off because then you're, you're, you're very vulnerable to what they want, uh, that other country wants. So my definition of energy independence is uh, reducing – having a much healthier balance of trade in energy than we have had in the past. And we are certainly – I mean we, we are very much there. And we have an opportunity to go even further. One of the reasons we're starting to export oil and petrochemicals and and some petroleum products like diesel is because we're generating so much more here uh, and also because we're we're starting – renewables play a role in that. You bring in – the more renewables you use, which are a domestic resource, the more gas that's available for other purposes and for export if we want. So – the goal wouldn't be energy independence as much as a diversification. Diversification and just avoiding ever being held over a barrel by one mm-hmm. supplier. And on that technical element of what it would take to consume more of the energy that the US is producing, has that overhaul of US refinery design actually happened? Is it underway to what degree? Um definitely underway um and and uh 
we're also seeing a build out, a new build out of the pipeline system in order to be able to share uh, and move around products in a way we haven't in the past. So uh, there's been a huge amount of investment, um, and we're getting there. Uh, certainly, more pipelines from uh, down to the Gulf Coast, I think, would probably help in terms of being able to bring uh, some of the, the uh, raw product, the crude and the natural gas, to the coast where we tend to refine it and get it into products like diesel and petrochemicals for mm. use or for export. So we, we've talked about the – the generational shift underway where there are some progressive spots on the map. Um, Certainly Austin would be on that map. But then there's the opposite end of the spectrum, Mm -hmm. right, where you see a lot of local opposition to massive wind farms and infrastructure that's being brought into areas where people are very proud of their land. They want to maintain the integrity of their, their vistas. And you see similar debates in the issue of 5G rollouts where Mm -hmm. There are a lot of obstacles to bringing in the infrastructure required for that level of high-speed connectivity to more rural areas. Do you believe this is a dynamic that could have a deeper economic and thus social and political impact longer term if rural middle America opts out or is effectively sidelined from these technological advancements? Yeah, no, I think that's a, it's a great question, and it's a really important question because one of the things that I write about in my book, Superpower, in building these transmission lines is that – a lot of the opposition to these transmission lines came from people who felt that they were not being included in some of the the economic changes and the economic boom that we've had over the last 10 years. We've had an incredible run since the Great Recession, job creation, stock market, but it's been unequal. If you live in certain cities, if you have access to certain jobs, you're doing great. If you have money in the stock market, you know, you're, you're, you're happy when you get that mm-hmm. quarterly statement. But you, know, you talk to people in Fort Smith, Arkansas, talk to people in other rural areas, and they're saying, well, wait, we're not seeing this benefit, and we don't necessarily want to turn over our land and to have these transmission lines come in that are going to benefit other people. That's a really important dynamic that I think we are going to need to address as a country if we're going to have this infrastructure development. We'll get back to Russell Gold and Riva Gujon in just one moment. But given the events unfolding in the Persian Gulf this summer, and also threats in the Strait of Hormuz, a key energy transport conduit, energy security is at the forefront of our minds. Stratfor Enterprise and Stratfor ThreatLens help businesses involved in the energy industry focus on identifying, anticipating, and mitigating risks that emerging threats pose to their people, assets, and interests. Our clients rely on Stratfor to pinpoint evolving global events so they can forecast and implement protective measures with absolute confidence. If you're not already a Stratfor member, you can learn more at stratfor.com slash enterprise. Now back to Riva Gujon and Russell Gold. Riva Gujon, and I'm joined by Russell Gold, the author of Politics Plays a Big Role and Subsidies in Particular, right? Mm-hmm. Whether mm-hmm. they stay, they grow, they expand, they contract, um, that will play a very big role in, in how much these emerging technologies can ultimately be adopted on a larger scale. So what does that subsidy picture look like currently? How did it shift in the Trump era? Well, so wind subsidies are going away right now. They're in the process of being stepped down, and I don't foresee a huge change coming politically. I don't see a lot of uh, – certainly Republicans seem to be more than happy with that, and I don't see Democrats uh, going to war to, to preserve these. And frankly, I think that's fine. Uh, wind is a mature technology. It's ready to stand on its own. Solar still is going to have for a few more years a subsidy, and that's probably – 
for the best. Um, look, we use subsidies to support um, maturing technologies, and solar still remains a maturing technology. But we're at a point right now where we can remove a lot of these subsidies and still have these technologies compete. Now the question then becomes, in my mind, is, well, you know, a lot of energies get some subsidies one way or the other. The nuclear industry has an insurance subsidy. I mean, they couldn't go out and get insurance on their own. The government comes in and does that. There are some very favorable tax benefits in terms of depreciation that the, the oil and gas industry gets. So we still use the tax code to make sure that, that our energy is, is profitable and, and the right amount of capital comes in. But the debate of four or five years ago that, you know, if you take away the subsidies, wind and solar go away, I, I just don't see that happening. You, you see that in sort of the end, I'm not going to give away exactly what happened at the end of the book, but you see that at the end of Superpower, where Skelly is, is sitting down negotiating with TVA, and we're sort of inside the room, we've got all the documents. He's offering power at below two cents per kilowatt hour, which is an incredibly compelling price. You can't go out and, and get wholesale power at that. Even if you were to take away the two cent subsidy, four cents per kilowatt hour is still a very compelling. Right. So if wind continues to go down, you can just sort of see, uh, and that is not local wind. I mean, that's wind plus transmission, the whole, okay. the, the whole package. So you, you asked me about the Trump administration, obviously not a huge friend or fan of renewables. Um, mostly from, from a policy perspective, they have looked at ways to protect existing coal and nuclear plants, uh, mostly in the Northeast and what's called the PJM interconnect. It's a giant grid that sort of basically covers Pennsylvania and parts of a bunch of other states. That's a really interesting question. And I think there's a really fascinating question about should we be specifically subsidizing our nuclear power plants? Because once a nuclear power plant shuts down, it doesn't get reopened. Mm. We can't build new nuclear power plants right now. If you look at Georgia, what Southern's doing with the Vogel plant, six years behind schedule, billions of dollars running over. I mean, it's, it's, it's a mess, and we don't even know if that's going to get finally built. So there is a really important question, and that is that how do we ensure – that existing nuclear power plants stay online because there's a, there's a very clear environmental benefit to having them continue to run. And there's a geopolitical benefit also. I mean, if we're, you know, as the United States goes back into Iran and wants to check to see how far advanced their nuclear development is, well, a lot of the expertise to figure that out comes from people coming out of the nuclear energy industry. If we don't have a nuclear en energy industry, we're not going to have the expertise to be able to go in and see what other countries are doing, either with their, their nuclear power or, or nuclear weapons development. Mm -hmm. Subsidizing coal plants, I, I, I struggle to see the justification for that. The, the only real justification is that they're big job creators in rural communities. You take away that coal plant, there's not much left, and there needs to be a lot more focus and attention being placed on the impact of closing coal plants on rural communities. And there's a question of how temporary, then, is that that Trump effect and what happens post-2020. There's a You could feel Skelly's anxiety. It was very palpable when he 2016 election happens, and he's trying to decipher the president. And cleverly uses the tactic of, of well, let, blame Obama for the delays in the red tape that this big job generating yeah. economic project, but he could be the one to have it come through. Right. But ultimately, 
it's quote was, I don't know what Trump wants, which yeah. I think is a question. We're still that. trying to figure that We're out still on infrastructure. Well, and you know, several years, a couple of years ago, right at the beginning of the Trump administration, he he rolled out this list of like major infrastructure projects he was going to get behind, and two of these transmission lines that he was trying to build were on the top twenty. Mm-hmm. And nothing's really happened there, so uh, you know. The, we, we the, sort of the joke is we we have an infrastructure week in Washington D.C. and nothing happens, and six months later we have another infrastructure week. Um, as a country, we are going to have to start paying attention and figuring out a way to pay attention to our infrastructure because it is crumbling. We had a massive post World War II growth. We built lots of infrastructure, whether we're talking roads or transmission. That is all now seventy five years old. We need to start thinking about replacing it and figuring out how to do that and building for the future. And and one of the main takeaways in reading through this is that the, the political, the regulatory nightmare in trying to advance these uh, technologies and expand our, our power generation in a more sustainable way is that someone has to be the loser, right? Mm, Whether it's yeah. – the utility company, the traditional job generators, the politicians that are being lobbied by those traditional interests. How zero-sum is energy policy? And when, as you referenced, the the sacrifices that it took to build the interstate highway, is that political climate even replicable today? No, it's a great question. I was actually interviewing um, the head of Renew Power, which is a major Indian uh, renewable energy developer just a couple days ago. Um, and, you know, they're talking about just massive build out of renewable energy, but the demand for energy is growing so much that no one's talking about closing coal plants in India. You know, it's just what, what is added? What's the incremental growth? The United States is a totally different picture. We are basically have flat, zero growth electricity. If you're adding wind, you're taking something out. Mm-hmm. And that's creating this political dynamic because there are areas which are coal areas, there are areas that are wind areas, there are areas that are gas areas. Energy politics tends to be very regional. And whether it's states or congresspeople are going to rise up and sort of fight against that. So once again, you know, it sort of comes down to this question of we don't have an energy policy in the United States. We have energy markets. We sort of let the markets figure it out. The markets are making their choice right now. You, you reference, we don't know what's going to happen after 2020, the, you know, whether Trump gets another four years or there's a change. To me, that's not even all that important. Um, I see what the markets are doing. And, and to me, it's a question of whether we go faster or slower. We don't have an energy policy right now that says we want to accelerate you know, one of the big takeaways, you know, I listen to politicians right now, and they're talking about, should we get back into the Paris Accord? Should we sort of renew our commitments to a certain amount of, of greenhouse gas reductions? What about the Green New Deal? I mean, there are all these ideas. All the Paris Accords ask of us is to come up with a national plan. Well, what's the United States national plan? We, we don't really have one. I mean, the Obama administration place. sort of had one with the clean power. What's the Green New Deal? Well, once again, there's not a lot of meat on the bones. I would encourage politicians who are interested in that to read through Superpower and, and what happened to Skelly because here's a project that would have brought massive amounts of renewable energy and understand what happened to that and why it was such a, a long, frustrating process because it's not enough to say, I want to get back into Paris. You need to say, and here's the plan. Here's how we get a 20 percent reduction. Here's mm-hmm. how you know, of carbon. 
uh, here's how we're going to do this. It's not a political statement anymore. It's an actual proposal. You Absolutely. I mean, you, you can make the political statement all you want, but it's not going to have any real effect unless you start thinking about the policies to get there. And right now, the policies that we have in place, the split between state and federal government and, and the sort of the loggerheads that they can kind of come to mm-hmm. is not going to allow the kind of rapid renewable growth that will allow us to meet some of these greenhouse gas emissions targets that, that have been talked about over the years or, frankly, allow us to modernize our electricity grid and the way we generate electricity so that we're keeping prices at a very competitive level. It is a zero-sum game. Somebody is going to lose mm. as other people win. Now, I've said this before. I'll say it again. If we're not paying attention to who's losing, and the communities are losing because, you know, a coal plant shuts down, 100 jobs are lost. You think, well, you know, is that a big – coal plants are often in small towns. 100 jobs lost, high-paying, sometimes unionized jobs in a small town is going to have a devastating impact. We need to be thinking about what do we do? How do we – accommodate those people who, frankly, have had, you know, a really important role and over the years have produced the kind of electricity that that was needed to keep the American economy going. You know, we need to figure this out before it's too late. Skelly's story is a very significant cautionary tale. Thank you for being here today, Russell. Really enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Reva. Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Reva Gujon and Russell Gold, author of Superpower, One Man's Quest to Transform American Energy. Russell is also the author of The Boom, How Fracking Ignited the American Energy Revolution and Changed the World. And we'll have details about both those books in our show notes. And if you're interested in learning how Stratfor can help you with analytic tools to both visualize and anticipate those areas in the world where your interests and operations are at greatest risk, be sure to visit stratfor.com slash enterprise. And don't forget to leave a review on the Stratfor podcast page on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen. We really do appreciate your feedback. And for more geopolitical intelligence and links to our content, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. I'm Ben Sheen. Thanks for listening.